The ACB Braille Forum, Volume 53, July 2014, Number 1. Published by the American Council of the Blind. Read by Todd Smith and Bart Morse in the recording studio of the Perkins Library. This recording is tone indexed. The beginning of each item in the table of contents will be indicated by a beep, audible when your cassette player is in fast forward or rewind. The American Council of the Blind strives to increase the independence, security, equality of opportunity, and to improve quality of life for all blind and visually impaired people. Kim Charlson, President Melanie Brunson, Executive Director Sharon Lovering, Editor National Office 2200 Wilson Boulevard, Suite 650, Arlington, Virginia, 2220 Phone 202-467-5081 Fax 703-465-5085 Website www.acb.org The ACB Braille Forum, registered trademark, is available in Braille, large print, half-speed, four-track cassette tape, data CD, and via email. Subscription requests, address changes, and items intended for publication should be sent to Sharon Lovering at the aforementioned address or via email to slovering at acb.org. The American Council of the Blind, registered trademark, is a membership organization made up of more than 70 state and special interest affiliates. To join, contact the National Office at 202-467-5081. Those much-needed contributions, which are tax-deductible, can be sent to Attention Treasurer, ACB 6300 Shingle Creek Parkway, Suite 195, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 55430. If you wish to remember a relative or friend, the National Office has printed cards available for this purpose. Consider including a gift to ACB in your last will and testament. If your wishes are complex, call the National Office. To make a contribution to ACB via the combined federal campaign, use this number, 11155. For the latest in legislative and governmental news, call the Washington Connection, toll-free, at 800-424-8666, 5 p.m. to midnight Eastern Time, or read it online. Copyright 2014, American Council of the Blind All content created initially for use by ACB in publications in any media on any website domains administered by ACB, or as a broadcast or podcast on ACB radio, archived or not, is considered to be the property of the American Council of the Blind. Creative content that appears elsewhere originally remains the property of the original copyright holder. Those responsible for creative content submitted initially to ACB are free to permit their materials to appear elsewhere with proper attribution and prior notification to the ACB National Office. Table of Contents President's Message More Prescription Drug Access Coming to Your Neighborhood by Kim Charlson Staying Connected in Vegas by Janet Dickelman 
ACB at the Other End of Your Telephone Wire by Marlena Lieberg Getting Health Insurance When You Retire Early by Ron Pollock Board of Publications Gives You the Chance to Let Your Voice Be Heard Why Do We Fear the Blind by Rosemary Mahoney Blind Purdue Grad Works to Make Science Accessible by Haley Colombo Musings, ACB Past, Present, and Future by Paul Edwards Affiliate News Here and There, edited by Sharon Strakowski High-Tech Swap Shop Forum Subscription Notes You can now get the Braille Forum by podcast. To subscribe, go to the Braille Forum page on www.acb.org. If you do not yet have a podcast client, you can download one from the Forum page. To subscribe to the Braille Forum via email, go to www.acb.org slash m-a-i-l-m-a-n slash l-i-s-t-i-n-f-o slash b-r-a-i-l-l-e-f-o-r-u-m dash l. Are you moving? Do you want to change your subscription? Contact Sharon Lovering in the ACB National Office, 1-800-424-8666, or via email s-l-o-v-e-r-i-n-g at acb.org. Give her the information, and she'll take care of the changes for you. Listen to the ACB Braille Forum, eForum, and ACB Reports by phone. Dial 231-460-1061. Want to enjoy ACB Radio but have no computer? It's all there for you by phone. Call 231-460-1047. ACB Radio, the place to be with people in the know. www.acbradio.org President's Message More Prescription Drug Access Coming to Your Neighborhood By Kim Charlson ACB continues to advocate on the prescription drug label accessibility issue on several fronts. Much of our success has come from collaboration with Laney Feingold and Linda Dardarian using the process of structured negotiation to accomplish a positive outcome rather than time-consuming and costly litigation. I am very pleased to share the latest success in this area. An announcement with Walgreens launching a talking prescription label solution for identifying medications. On June 3, 2014, Walgreens officially launched a nationwide program offering talking prescription devices for customers with visual impairments. Walgreens Accessibility Initiative will help people who are blind or visually impaired who have difficulty or are unable to read a standard prescription medication label. This initiative adds to Walgreens' other accessible prescription information services. In addition to providing the talking pill reminder, Walgreens also offers large print patient information sheets to customers who have visual impairments. Walgreens is the nation's largest drugstore chain and the first in the industry to offer its own exclusive talking prescription device called the Talking Pill Reminder, which attaches to the bottom of a prescription bottle. The device will be provided free of charge with prescription medications that Walgreens dispenses to its pharmacy customers who are blind or who have visual impairments. 
The talking pill reminder can be recorded by pharmacy staff to speak the information on the customer's prescription medication label, and it also has an audible alarm which can be activated to help remind patients when to take a specific medication. The talking pill reminder is available to customers of Walgreens retail pharmacies across the country and through Walgreens prescription mail service free of charge. The devices are also available in Walgreens drugstores for purchase for a retail price of $9.99 by anyone who wants to use this device but is not a Walgreens pharmacy customer. Adherence to medication can be critical in treating illness today, and this device is an innovation that will help our visually impaired customers correctly identify and take medications as prescribed, said Jeff Koziel, Walgreens Group Vice President of Pharmacy Operations. As part of our mission to help customers get, stay, and live well, we're proud to have worked closely with other leading organizations to make the Talking Pill Reminder available across all of our more than 8,100 stores nationwide. ACB partnered with its affiliates in California and Illinois on this successful initiative to make critical prescription information accessible to people who are blind. Through this program, Walgreens has taken a significant leadership role in serving its customers with visual impairments. All partnering organizations have praised the Walgreens announcement as groundbreaking. Illinois Council of the Blind spokesperson Ray Campbell commended Walgreens' initiative, saying, So many of our members and ACB members across the country value Walgreens' excellent customer service. The company's rollout of the talking pill reminder gives customers yet another reason to make Walgreens their pharmacy of choice. California Council of the Blind President Donna Pomerantz said, Standard prescription labels put customers who are blind at risk for mixing up medications or taking them incorrectly. For this reason, Walgreens' initiative is a matter of basic safety, and we congratulate the company on its efforts in this important area. This settlement is a tremendous national commitment by Walgreens, and ACB will continue to work with Walgreens and other players in this area about other access possibilities moving forward. I am personally very excited to have ACB working with Walgreens on this nationwide talking prescription access program. Bringing this level of accessibility to prescription medications at the local pharmacy level is what ACB's advocacy is all about. Making it easier and safer for people who are blind to live and work in their communities independently. I believe that this is just one more step in putting the issue of accessible prescription labeling on the map for serious attention by companies, corporations, and government alike. In the meantime, take steps in your life to know what medications you are taking and to have accessible prescription labels for your medicines every day. Staying Connected in Vegas by Janet Dickelman Many of you will be reading this article as you are packing for Las Vegas. For those of you who are still thinking about attending the convention, it isn't too late. Don't miss out on the outstanding general sessions, informative seminars and programming, the fabulous tours, and the excitement of the exhibit hall. You can still book a room at the Riviera, the home of the 53rd Annual Conference and Convention. Reservation details can be found at the end of this article. Convention Information Desk When you arrive in Las Vegas, be sure to visit the Information Desk, where you will find material in Braille, large print, and computer downloads, hotel orientation, 
local business information, and, of course, the convention newspaper are just some of the items that will be waiting for you. For those of you who will be unable to attend this year, there are many ways to be a part of the excitement. ACB Radio Stay connected with everything that is going on from the comfort of your home or office. Note, all times are Pacific time. Be a part of the excitement of opening session. Listen to all the speakers and follow ACB business and elections. General sessions begin Sunday evening, July 13 at 7 p.m., Monday through Thursday, 8.30 a.m. until noon, and Friday from 8.30 a.m. until 5 p.m. Also on ACB Radio, hear what the candidates for ACB office have to say as they answer questions at the Candidates Forum, Thursday, July 17 at 7 p.m. Hear all the great performances from the Friends in Art Showcase on Tuesday evening at 8. ACB's banquet, including the banquet speaker, presentation of awards and announcement of the ACB Braille Forum raffle winners on Friday, July 18 at 7 p.m. Once again this year, ACB Radio will be broadcasting one afternoon session as a live broadcast. All live broadcasts will be on ACB Radio Mainstream. Other ACB committee sessions will be recorded and broadcast later in the day on ACB Radio Live Event. No computer? No problem. You can listen to ACB Radio over the telephone by calling 231-460-1047. Please keep in mind that long-distance charges apply. Convention Announce Email List To subscribe to the Convention Announce List, just send a blank email to acbconvention-subscribe at acb.org. Convention Newspaper Keep up with what's going on at the convention with The Real Deal Review, our convention newspaper published Saturday, July 12 through Thursday, July 17. The newspaper will be posted to the convention announce list. Social Media Follow the latest goings-on at the convention on Facebook and Twitter. To follow us on Twitter, go to www.twitter.com slash A-C-B-N-A-T-I-O-N-A-L or like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash A-M-E-R-I-C-A-N-C-O-U-N-C-I-L-O-F-T-H-E-B-L-I-N-D-O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L Whether you are in Las Vegas or staying connected with us from home, I hope you have a wonderful convention experience. Feel free to contact me anytime during the convention. You can either leave a message for me at the Riviera or call my cell phone, 651-428-5059. I look forward to seeing you in Las Vegas. Reservation Details We will be using two towers at the Riviera. Room rates in the Monaco Tower are $87 per night, and rates in Monte Carlo are $63. The Monaco is a non-smoking tower. It was remodeled in 2008. All rooms have refrigerators. The Monte Carlo Tower has smoking and non-smoking floors, 
and the rooms have not been updated recently. Current hotel tax rates are 12%. You will be charged for one night's stay when you make your reservation. Make telephone reservations by calling 1-800-634-6753 or online by visiting the ACB website at www.acb.org and following the 2014 Conference and Convention link. Convention Contacts 2014 Exhibit Information Michael Smitherman, 601-331-7740 Email amduo at b-e-l-l-s-o-u-t-h dot net 2014 Advertising and Sponsorships Marjorie Beeman, 512-921-1625 Email O-L-E-O-5-0 at H-O-T-M-A-I-L dot com. ACB at the other end of your telephone wire. The computer age makes it possible to share and transfer relevant and valuable information with lightning speed. However, as we all know, not everyone has a computer and some folks simply are not interested in obtaining one. Over the last few years, ACB's board and staff have been seeking reliable and secure methods to ensure that all our members and friends receive the relevant information they need and want, and in the format that is most feasible. Now, after much research and discussion with various telephonic information providers, ACB is delighted to offer its flagship publication, the ACB Braille Forum, as well as the ACB eForum, ACB Reports, and all ACB radio channels to you by phone. You can navigate by articles, rewind, and generally move through the publications and ACB radio streams with your touchtone phone. To hear the ACB Braille Forum, eForum, and ACB reports, call 231-460-1061. And if you've always wanted to hear ACB radio but do not own a computer, or maybe you just want to stretch out in the sun and listen to the fabulous content we offer across our six channels, it's your lucky day. From talk and information on mainstream, to music on the interactive and cafe streams, to affiliate events on the live stream, world news on the news stream, and those wonderful old-time radio shows of yesteryear heard on our Treasure Trove stream, we've got it for you, and it's all available through your phone. To listen to ACB Radio by phone, call 231-460-1047. Please note that neither of these are toll-free, so long-distance charges may apply. Check with your telephone provider for more information. I am personally excited about all of the above and hope you will give it a try. Please pass this article along to those who would prefer to use the telephone to keep up with the important information ACB shares with its members and friends. Marlena Lieberg Getting Health Insurance When You Retire Early by Ron Pollack Editor's note, Ron Pollack is the Executive Director of Families USA, the National Organization for Healthcare Consumers. End of note. If you decide to retire early, 
You might have trouble keeping your health insurance until you are eligible for Medicare, since few employers offer health coverage to retirees. Fortunately, the Affordable Care Act provides new options for coverage. Here we answer some questions you might have as you figure out your health insurance options. Can I get coverage through my spouse if he or she has workplace coverage? Your spouse may still be working for an employer who offers health insurance to family members. Perhaps you declined that coverage before because you had it through your own job. Now might be a good time to reevaluate if you want to join your spouse's plan. But act quickly. After you lose your coverage, you have a special 30-day period to enroll in coverage that is offered through your spouse's employer. Go to www.familiesusa.org slash sites slash default slash files slash product underscore documents slash special hyphen enrollment hyphen opportunity dot pdf www.familiesusa.org slash s-i-t-e-s slash d-e-f-a-u-l-t slash f-i-l-e-s slash p-r-o-d-u-c-t underscore d-o-c-u-m-e-n-t-s slash s-p-e-c-i-a-l hyphen e-n-r-o-l-l-m-e-n-t hyphen O-P-P-O-R-T-U-N-I-T-Y dot P-D-F for more information on signing up for workplace coverage. Can I keep my old health plan? If you worked in a business with 20 or more employees, a federal law called COBRA allows you to keep that health plan for 18 months or longer in some circumstances. However, you generally have to pay the full cost of monthly premiums, both the share of premiums that is paid by employees and the share that your employer used to pay, plus a small administrative fee. This may be expensive, but it gives you access to the same benefits and providers you had while you were working. Can I shop for and compare plans in the new health insurance marketplaces? You can buy an individual health plan through your state's new health insurance marketplace. To find your state's marketplace, go to www.healthcare.gov, www.healthcare.gov. You may want to compare the premiums, providers, and benefits in marketplace plans with the costs and benefits of your former employer's plan to decide whether the marketplace or COBRA would be a better deal for you you have a special opportunity to buy a marketplace plan within 60 days of losing your employer-based coverage. If you miss the 60-day window, you must wait until November 15th for open enrollment. Marketplace plans may be a particularly good deal if your income for 2014 will be between $11,490 and $45,960, or between $15,510 and $62,040 for you and your spouse. You may even qualify for financial assistance that lowers your monthly premiums. 
don't forget to apply for help paying costs in the marketplace. And people with the lowest incomes may qualify for special silver plans that have lower deductibles and co-payments. Can I buy an individual health plan outside of the marketplace? In most states, you can buy individual insurance outside of the marketplace by going directly to an insurance company or broker. Under the Affordable Care Act, all new health plans that are sold to individuals must cover a set of essential health benefits and cannot refuse to cover you if you have a pre-existing condition. However, if you buy a plan outside of the marketplace, you will miss out on some benefits. For instance, the marketplace offers plans that undergo greater scrutiny for consumer protection. Plus, the marketplace allows you to compare plan options from multiple insurance companies, apply for financial assistance to lower your monthly premiums, and get help from an unbiased organization or a call center. Can I get Medicaid? If your income for 2014 drops below $1,342 a month or $2,406 a month for you and your spouse, you should check to see if you can get Medicaid in your state. The income guidelines are even higher in a few states. The Affordable Care Act allows states to offer Medicaid to most low-income adults. Unfortunately, only about half the states have expanded Medicaid. Visit kff.org slash health hyphen reform slash slide slash current hyphen status hyphen of hyphen the hyphen Medicaid hyphen expansion hyphen decision slash kff.org slash H-E-A-L-T-H hyphen R-E-F-O-R-M slash S-L-I-D-E slash C-U-R-R-E-N-T hyphen S-T-A-T-U-S hyphen O-F hyphen T-H-E hyphen M-E-D-I-C-A-I-D hyphen E-X-P-A-N-S-I-O-N hyphen D-E-C-I-S-I-O-N slash to see which states have expanded. If you live in a state that has not expanded Medicaid, you can apply for Medicaid anyway and save the denial notice. This denial exempts you from the requirement to have health insurance. If you are considering retiring early, visit the health insurance marketplace to research your coverage options. By planning ahead, you can make sure you are covered until you qualify for Medicare. Board of Publications gives you the chance to let your voice be heard. The Board of Publications, BOP, is seeking the assistance of all ACB members and ACB Braille Forum subscribers. Those of us on the BOP know and believe that the best way to garner support for any and all ACB publications is to ensure that those publications address the needs, interests, and concerns of as many ACB members and subscribers as possible. Both in a previous ACB e-forum article and at the affiliate president's meeting this past February, 
We told you about our plans to conduct a comprehensive membership survey to get the feedback of our readers on a range of topics connected with our two primary national publications, the ACB Braille Forum and the ACB eForum. We are pleased to let you know that the survey is now available and we are inviting ACB members and friends to share their opinions. Our goals are to learn how our readers access these publications, which sections they like most, where readers think we can improve, and any ideas readers have for making improvements to the quality and or quantity of the information we publish. In order to ensure that our survey reaches the widest possible audience and that return rates are as high as possible and reflective of our entire membership base, including people who do not have access to computers or the Internet, the survey is being included in this issue of the ACB eForum, available online at forms.acb.org slash BOP survey. F-O-R-M-S dot A-C-B dot org slash B-O-P-S-U-R-V-E-Y via email and a hard copy can be mailed to you in your chosen format upon request by contacting Sharon Lovering at the A-C-B National Office by calling 1-800-424-8666. We will also provide copies to each state and special interest affiliate president, as well as to each member of the board and national staff. All of these members will be asked to assist any member to complete the survey if asked. BOP members will also be available to help anyone needing assistance, both before and throughout Convention Week. If you would like to request assistance in completing the survey, you may call one 877-651-9560. Leave your name, phone number, and the best time to call, and someone will get back to you as quickly as possible. Email responses can be set to bopchair at acb.org, bopchair at acb.org. The survey should take approximately 15 minutes to complete and we don't want anyone to be left out. Finally, the BOP is very excited to be conducting two town hall meetings during the 2014 ACB conference and convention regarding this project to be held on Sunday afternoon, July 13, and Thursday afternoon, July 17. The purpose of the town hall meetings will be to talk candidly about all aspects of forum production, answer any of your questions, and receive feedback from any and all who attend. Everyone attending the convention is invited. We want to hear from you. ACB Board of Publications 2014 Membership Survey Questionnaire The following questions pertain to the ACB Braille Forum. This is the bi-monthly magazine which is published in hard copy formats, including Braille, large print, on cassette tape, on CD-ROM, and in several other electronic formats. 1A. Do you receive the ACB Braille Forum? Choose only one. A. Yes. B. No. 2A. 
In what format do you receive the ACB Braille Forum? Choose all that apply. A. I read it on the ACB website. B. Large print I receive in the mail. C. Large print I download from the ACB website. D. Braille I receive in the mail. E. Braille I download from the ACB website. F. Text on CD-ROM. G. Text I download from the ACB website. H. Audio cassette tape. I. Email. J. Phone via ACB radio slash audio now. K. Phone via NFB newsline. 3A. How often do you read the ACB Braille Forum? Choose only one. A. Every time it comes out, all six issues. B. Usually, but not always, four or five issues per year. C. Sometimes, about three issues per year. D. Occasionally, but not often, one or two issues per year. E. Rarely, if ever. 4A. When you read the ACB Braille Forum, how do you read it? Choose only one. A. I read it cover to cover. B. I read it in bits and pieces over several days or weeks. C. I read only those parts of the magazine that interest me. D. I rarely read it. 5A. Which three ACB Braille Forum features do you like most? Choose your top three. A. President's Message B. Convention Information and Updates C. ACB Business, Committee Reports, etc. D. Articles from ACB members and other individuals E. Affiliate Updates F. High-Tech Swap Shop G. Here and There H. Poetry and Other Features I. Other Please describe. 6a. When you are finished reading the ACB Braille Forum, what do you usually do with the magazine? Check the answer that best describes what you do. a. I keep the magazine so that I can refer back to it in the future. b. I share the magazine with another individual or organization so it can be passed along to someone else. c. I discard the magazine. d. Other. Please describe. The following questions pertain to the new ACB eForum. This electronic magazine was launched in 2013 and is published bi-monthly during the months when the ACB Braille Forum is not published. 7a. Do you receive the ACB eForum? A. Yes. B. No. 8a. If you do not receive the ACB eForum, which of the following statements best describes why you do not receive it? Choose only one. A. I do not have access to email. B. I do not like reading magazines in an electronic format. C. I do not like listening to magazines in an audio format. D. I have never heard of the ACB eForum. E. Other Please describe. 9a. If you are an eForum recipient, how often do you read the eForum? Choose only one.
A. Every time it comes out. B. Usually, but not always, four or five issues per year. C. Sometimes, about three issues per year. D. Occasionally, but not often, one or two issues per year. E. Rarely, if ever. 10a. When you read the ACB E forum, how do you read it? Choose only one. A. I read it cover to cover. B. I read it in bits and pieces over several days or weeks. C. I read only those parts of the magazine that interest me. D. I rarely read it. The following questions pertain to both of ACB's primary publications, the ACB Braille Forum and the ACB E-Forum. 11a. Which document formats are accessible to you for ACB publications? Choose all that apply. a. Text displayed on the ACB website. b. Large print available by mail. c. Large print, which can be downloaded from the ACB website. d. Braille available by mail. e. Braille, which can be downloaded from the ACB website. f. Text on CD-ROM. g. Text, which can be downloaded from the ACB website. h. Audio cassette tape. i. Email. j. Phone via ACB radio slash audio now. K. Phone via NFB newsline. 12a. If you could receive the ACB Braille Forum in any format, which would you choose? Choose only one. a. Text displayed on the ACB website. b. Large print available by mail. c. Large print, which can be downloaded from the ACB website. D. Braille, available by mail. E. Braille, which can be downloaded from the ACB website. F. Text on CD-ROM. G. Text, which can be downloaded from the ACB website. H. Audio cassette tape. I. Audio on CD-ROM. J. Email. K. Phone via ACB radio slash audio now. L. Phone via NFB newsline. M. Audio via podcast. N. Other, please describe. 13A. Although the ACB collects a total of $5 per member per year, it costs the ACB about $40 to produce and provide the ACB Braille Forum and the ACB E-Forum to one member for one year. Given this fact, would you be willing to A. Pay higher dues B. Pay an additional subscription fee C. Make a voluntary donation D. Some combination of A, B, and or C E. I would not be willing to pay more to receive the ACB Braille Forum and ACB E-Forum. 14a. If you would be willing to pay more to cover the cost of the ACB Braille Forum and or the ACB E-Forum, what amount would you be able, willing to pay over and above the current ACB annual dues of $5?
A, $10. B, $20. C, $30. D, $40. E, other. Please describe. 15A. How do you think ACB should raise money to cover the rising cost of producing and distributing ACB publications? Check all that apply. A. Higher annual dues. B. A voluntary donation to cover subscription costs. C. A combination of A and B. D. Other. Please describe. The following questions pertain to your feelings about ACB's use of Twitter, Facebook, and other social media outlets. 16A. Do you use Twitter? Check only one. A. Yes. B. No. 17A. If you use Twitter, do you follow ACB or any ACB affiliates or chapters? A. Yes. B. No. 18A. Do you use Facebook? Check only one. A. Yes. B. No. 19A. If you use Facebook, have you liked ACB's webpage? A. Yes. B. No. Comments. 20A. Please share any other comments you have that would assist the ACB Board of Publications to improve the quality and or accessibility of ACB publications. Demographic Information The following questions are optional. You do not have to answer them. Any information you provide will not be shared or correlated with your specific answers to the survey. Our intent is to ensure that our survey is reaching the broadest possible cross-section of ACB members and friends. It will also assist us in evaluating any potential correlations between specific responses and groups of respondents, e.g. men, women, people over 75, people in the East, people with limited incomes, etc. 1b. Your zip code. 2b. Gender. Choose only one. a. Male. b. Female. c. Prefer not to specify. 3b. Age. Choose only one. a. Under 18. b. 18 to 24. c. 25 to 39. d. 40 to 49. e. 50 to 59. f. 60 to 74. g. 75 plus. h. Prefer not to disclose. 4b. Annual income. Choose only one. A. $24,999 or less. B. Between $25,000 and $49,999. C. Between $50,000 and $74,999. D. Between $75,000 and $99,999. E. $100,000 or more. F. Prefer not to disclose. 5b. How many ACB national conventions have you attended within the past 10 years? Choose only one. A. 8 or more. B. 5 to 7. C. 3 to 5. D. 1 or 2. E. I have never attended an ACB national convention. 
6B. Are you involved with an ACB state affiliate and or an ACB special interest affiliate? A. Yes. B. No. 7B. Are you involved with a local chapter of an ACB state or special interest affiliate? Choose only one. A. Yes. B. No. Optional Contact Information If you would like to disclose your contact information and or if you would like to be contacted by a member of the Board of Publications to discuss your thoughts and ideas about how ACB can improve the quality and availability of our publications, please feel free to provide the following information. 1C, first name. 2C, last name. 3C, email address. 4C, daytime phone number. 5C, evening slash weekend phone number. Why Do We Fear the Blind? by Rosemary Mahoney. Reprinted from the New York Times, January 4, 2014. Editor's Note Rosemary Mahoney is the author of the forthcoming book, For the Benefit of Those Who See, Dispatches from the World of the Blind. Bristol, Rhode Island A few years ago, when I mentioned to a woman I met at a party that I was teaching in a school for the blind, she seemed confused. Can I just ask you one question, she said? How do you talk to your students? I explained that the students were blind, not deaf, raising the palms of her hands at me as if to stem further misunderstandings. She said, yes, I know they're not deaf, but what I really mean is, how do you actually talk to them? I knew, because I had been asked this question before by reasonably intelligent people, that the woman didn't know exactly what she meant. All she knew was that in her mind there existed a substantial intellectual barrier between the blind and the sighted. The blind could hear, yes, but could they properly understand? Throughout history and across cultures, the blind had been traduced by a host of mythologies such as this. They have variously been perceived as pitiable idiots incapable of learning, as artful masters of deception, or as mystics, possessed of supernatural powers. One of the most persistent misconceptions about blindness is that it is a curse from God for misdeeds perpetrated in a past life, which cloaks the blind person in spiritual darkness and makes him not just dangerous but evil. A majority of my blind students at the International Institute for Social Entrepreneurs in Trivandrum, India, a branch of Braille Without Borders, came from the developing world, Madagascar, Colombia, Tibet, Liberia, Ghana, Kenya, Nepal, and India. One of my students, the 27-year-old Sar, lost most of his eyesight to measles when he was a child. Like many children in rural West Africa, Sar had not been vaccinated. The residents of Sar's village were certain that his blindness, surely the result of witchcraft or immoral actions on his family's part, would adversely affect the entire village. They surrounded his house and shouted threats and abuse. They confiscated a considerable portion of his parents' land. 
Eventually, the elders decreed that Sar's father must take the child out to the bush where the demons live and abandon him there. The parents refused and fled the village with their son. Many of my students had similar experiences. Marco's parents, devout Colombian Catholics, begged a priest to say a mass so that their blind infant son would die before his existence brought shame and hardship on their household. The villagers in Kail's remote Tibetan village insisted that she, her two blind brothers, and their blind father should all just commit suicide because they were nothing but a burden to the sighted members of the family. When, as a child in Sierra Leone, James began to see objects upside down because of an ocular disease, the villagers were certain that he was possessed by demons. In these places, schools for blind children were deemed a preposterous waste of resources and effort. Teachers in regular schools refused to educate them. Sighted children ridiculed them, tricked them, spat at them, and threw stones at them. And when they reached working age, no one would hire them. During a visit to the Braille Without Borders Training Center in Tibet, I met blind children who had been beaten, told they were idiots, locked in rooms for years on end, and abandoned by their parents. These stories, which would have been commonplace in the Dark Ages, took place in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s. They are taking place now. Nine out of ten blind children in the developing world still have no access to education, many for no other reason than that they are blind. The United States has one of the lowest rates of visual impairment in the world, and yet blindness is still among the most feared physical afflictions. Even in this country, the blind are perceived as a people apart. Aversion toward the blind exists for the same reason that most prejudices exist, lack of knowledge. Ignorance is a powerful generator of fear, and fear slides easily into aggression and contempt. Anyone who has not spent more than five minutes with a blind person might be forgiven for believing, like the woman I met at the party, that there is an unbridgeable gap between us and them. For most of us, sight is the primary way we interpret the world. How can we even begin to conceive of a meaningful connection with a person who cannot see? Before I began living and working among blind people, I too wondered this. Whenever I saw a blind person on the street, I would stare transfixed, hoping out of a vague and visceral discomfort that I wouldn't have to engage with him. In his 1930 book, The World of the Blind, Pierre Villy, a blind French professor of literature, summarized the lurid carnival of prejudices and superstitions about the blind that were passed down the centuries. The sighted person judges the blind not for what they are, but by the fear blindness inspires, the revolt of his sensibility in the face of the most atrocious of maladies fills a sighted person with prejudice and gives rise to a thousand legends. The blind author Georgina Cleage, a lecturer at the University of California at Berkeley, more tersely wrote, The blind are either supernatural or subhuman, alien or animal. We take our eyesight so much for granted, cling to it so slavishly, and are so overwhelmed by its superficial data 
that even the most brilliant sighted person can take a stupidly long time to recognize the obvious. There is usually a perfectly healthy, active, and normal human mind behind that pair of unseeing eyes. Christopher Hitchens called blindness one of the oldest and most tragic disorders known to man. How horribly excluded and bereft we would feel to lose the world and the way of life that sight brings us. Blindness can happen to any one of us. Myself, I used to be certain I'd rather die than be blind. I could not imagine how I would have the strength to go on in the face of such a loss. And yet, people do. In 1749, the French philosopher Denis Diderot published an essay, Letter on the Blind, for the Benefit of Those Who See, in which he described a visit he and a friend made to the house of a blind man, the son of a professor of philosophy at the University of Paris. The blind man was married, had a son, had many acquaintances, was versed in chemistry and botany, could read and write with an alphabet of raised type, and made his living distilling liqueurs. Diderot wrote with wonder of the man's good, solid sense, of his tidiness, of his surprising memory for sounds and voices, of his ability to tell the weight of any object and the capacity of any vessel just by holding them in his hands, of his ability to dismantle and reassemble small machines, of his musical acuity, and of his extreme sensitivity to atmospheric change. The blind man, perhaps weary of being interrogated by Diderot and his friend, as if he were a circus animal, eventually asked them a question of his own. I perceive, gentlemen, that you are not blind. You are astonished at what I do, and why not as much at my speaking? More than any of his sensory skills, it was the blind man's self-esteem that surprised Diderot most. This blind man, he wrote, values himself as much as, and perhaps more than, we who see. I've learned from my blind friends and colleagues that blindness doesn't have to remain tragic. For those who can adapt to it, blindness becomes a path to an alternative and equally rich way of living. One of the many misconceptions about the blind is that they have greater hearing, sense of smell, and sense of touch than sighted people. This is not strictly true. Their blindness simply forces them to recognize gifts they always had, but had heretofore largely ignored. A few years ago I allowed myself to be blindfolded and led through the streets of Lhasa by two blind Tibetan teenage girls, students at Braille Without Borders. The girls had not grown up in the city, and yet they traversed it with ease, without stumbling or getting lost. They had a specific destination in mind, and each time they announced, Now we turn left, or now we turn right. I was compelled to ask them how they knew this. Their answers startled me, chiefly because the clues they were following, the sound of many televisions in an electronic shop, the smell of leather in a shoe shop, the feel of cobblestones suddenly underfoot, though out in the open for anyone to perceive, were virtually hidden from me. For the first time in my life, I realized how little notice I paid to sounds, to smells, indeed to the entire world that lay beyond my ability to see. 
The French writer Jacques Lucien, who lost his sight at the age of eight, understood that those of us who have sight are, in some ways, deprived by it. In return for all the benefits that sight brings, we are forced to give up others whose existence we don't even suspect. I do not intend to suggest there is something wonderful about blindness. There is only something wonderful about human resilience, adaptability, and daring. The blind are no more or less otherworldly, stupid, evil, gloomy, pitiable, or deceitful than the rest of us. It is only our ignorance that has cloaked them in these ridiculous garments. When Helen Keller wrote, It is more difficult to teach ignorance to think than to teach an intelligent blind man to see the grandeur of Niagara. She was speaking obviously of the uplifting and equalizing value of knowledge. Blind Purdue Grad Works to Make Science Accessible by Haley Colombo Reprinted from the Indianapolis Star, February 10, 2014 West Lafayette, Indiana Kerry Sapalo always has been a problem solver. When he attended Purdue University in the late 1990s, Sapalo encountered all the standard challenges of an undergraduate student pursuing a chemistry degree, plus one added hurdle. Sapalo is blind. That reality made benchtop lab work a real nuisance, but he didn't let it stop him from pursuing a career in science. I got through it here at Purdue initially by working with sighted assistants, said Sapalo, who is founder of Independent Science, a company in Purdue Research Park that creates science access products aimed at helping visually impaired students. Those truly devoted to science will stay with it. The majority of people who are blind or visually impaired will use sighted assistance to get the class done and move on to something else. I stayed with it because I really did enjoy it, he said. Sapalo hopes to make hands-on science a possibility for blind students who are often deterred from STEM, science, technology, math, and engineering fields, because of their fears or parent and teacher discouragement about doing experiments. You have a whole population of blind people that have had to problem-solve their entire life, to access the printed word, to cross the street, to go to school, Sapalo said. It just intuitively makes sense to give them scientific problems to try to solve. They're lifelong problem-solvers. We want to tap into that skill set. Later this month, Sapalo's company will be honored by the American Foundation for the Blind, for its contribution to universal accessibility. Independence Science joins an elite group by earning the Access Award, which will be presented at the group's 2014 Leadership Conference. Past winners include Apple, CBS, Google, IBM, McDonald's, and Panasonic. The goal of Independence Science's products is to ease the challenge of recording and reporting scientific information for students who have low vision or are blind. Some of its innovations include Talking LabQuest, a handheld data collection device that announces scientific data out loud while recording an experiment. 
Logger Pro app, which offers audible or tactile representations of graphs and data tables, and Adaption Support Program, a subscription service that equips educators with an accessible laboratory environment. The company, with 13 employees in offices across the country, was founded in 2009 by the Purdue alumnus. Since the first product was launched, Sapalo's team has sold hundreds of units domestically and globally. Talking LabQuest costs $1,500 for each device and also requires 70 sensors, each of which costs from about $10 to several hundred dollars. It was released in 2011 and is based on years of field research in which prototypes were put in the hands of blind and visually impaired students. We wanted to show that giving blind students the ability to collect their own quantifiable data would engage them more in science laboratory, which would then lead to higher feelings that they could become scientists and engineers, Sapalo said. That's what our data showed. It's very rewarding because I could see immediately I was removing barriers to access by their direct engagement in the lab experiments. As awareness continues to build about increasing access to people with disabilities, Sapalo said he believes companies that create and sell accessible products will see increased success. If your product line is more friendly to students with disabilities, it's going to be a more desirable purchase for schools. Sapalo said he is grateful for companies, namely Vernier Software and Technology, that have partnered with him. He said science access products for students with print disabilities, learning disabilities, dyslexia, difficulty reading, or who are visually impaired or blind, don't seem to be a priority for many companies. Access issues for students who are blind are becoming a more public issue. Miami University in Ohio is being sued by Aaliyah Dudley, who is blind, and alleges that Miami failed to provide accessible textbooks and course materials. The American Foundation for the Blind also gave this year's Access Award to the Metropolitan Museum of Art for its use of descriptive and touch tours, a patent-pending text technology company called Flexi, and Image Searcher, Inc., for its TapTapC camera app. By focusing on making their products and services accessible to everyone, including people with visual disabilities, this year's Access Award recipients have leveled the playing field for the more than 20 million Americans with vision loss, said Carl R. Augusto, president and CEO of the Foundation. The AFB said Independence Sciences' work has contributed to universal accessibility by paving the way for future generations of researchers, thanks to their commitment to ensuring hands-on experiences for all science, technology, engineering, and mathematics students, including and especially those with visual impairments. If you make something accessible for people with disabilities, by proxy, you make things accessible for everybody, said John Mackin, AFB's media relations manager. That's the idea behind universal accessibility and the access awards.
Sapalo said he is excited to receive the award. It really is an honor to know that people out there are acknowledging our work as significant, Sapalo said. If I died today, I would die knowing that I made a difference. Moving forward, Sapalo said he wants to expand into mobile technology, along with developing products that help inspire STEM skills in people with other disabilities. It's really come a long way from a big desktop computer to this, Sapalo said. Who knows what the next generation of technology is going to be? I have some ideas. Want more information? To join the Science Access Movement and sign up for the newsletter to receive monthly TVI tips, science news, and other disability access-related material, contact Independence Science, 3000 Kent Avenue, West Lafayette, Indiana, 47906, phone 1-866-862-9665, or email info at independencescience.com, info at I-N-D-E-P-E-N-D-E-N-C-E-S-C-I-E-N-C-E dot com. Musings, ACB Past, Present, and Future by Paul Edwards I was only 15 years old when ACB was born in 1961. I did not become involved, even at the state level, until I was 30. Among many other things, what attracted me about ACB were what I perceived to be the principles that I believed and believe are at its heart. To understand these core values, a little history is in order. Those who broke away from the NFB did so because they believed that two bad things were happening. First, they were convinced that a few people at the top of the organization on the national board were taking over. They believed that the rights of affiliates were being explicitly abrogated, and, despite repeated efforts to fix the problem, it only got worse. Individuals and affiliates were expelled from the NFB, and, in framing ACB, the Constitution and practice were intended to make sure that this would not happen here. As a result, affiliates were imbued with a lot of power, and the board and anybody the board hired were not. The Board of Publications was set up to make sure that a free press was maintained in ACB. The leadership of ACB has never had the power to tell the BOP what should be published and what should not. When people describe ACB's beginnings, these are the elements that receive the most attention. I believe that there is explicit and implicit evidence to suggest that there is another core value that we do not discuss as often that is at the heart of what we do. I believe that those who formed ACB wanted individuals and members to be empowered. I believe they felt it was just as important to protect the rights of individual members as it was to assure the paramountcy of affiliates. Our Resolutions Committee, the way debate is to be handled, and the fact that each member who is present at the convention has a vote, all point in this direction. I think that the value placed on what the convention says also points in this direction, all the folks who are present and voting make the rules and approve the policies that govern ACB. When I was president of ACB, I must tell you that I found our Constitution difficult. Unlike the Federation, ACB has to consult others before its leadership can make decisions. 
If we are moving in a direction different from that which our convention has espoused, we have to be even more circumspect in deciding what we can or should do. On the face of it, it wouldn't seem like there ought to be much difficulty reconciling these two values. But, all through its history, this has been the most difficult issue with which we have had to deal. How should the board respond if there is clear evidence that an affiliate's leaders are misusing their power? What responsibility does the board have to protect the rights of members of ACB, who are also members of affiliates who are being denied access to communication channels and who are arbitrarily removed from lists because they object to the actions of leaders? Which is more important, the autonomy of affiliates or protecting individual members from arbitrary mistreatment? There have been lots of instances in our past where those issues have either been implicitly or explicitly in play, and our board has usually taken steps that eventually solve the problem. Our Iowa affiliate felt that the board exceeded its authority when we took a stand regarding dog guides several years ago. We felt that the principle was more important than affiliate rights. In several instances where there has been dissension within an affiliate, the board has opted to approve the creation of more than one affiliate in a particular geographical area. We did this in Kentucky, Virginia, Hawaii, and California. The circumstances in each case were different, and I am not trying at all to suggest that one size fits all. Our convention has opted, based on a recommendation from our board and our credentials committee, to take votes away from Missouri, because it is our belief, as an organization, that their constitution arbitrarily excludes qualified people from membership. In all of these cases, we were dealing with situations where the rights of affiliates have been limited for what the board, and in at least one case, the membership of our organization, considered sufficient reason to justify stepping on the autonomy of individual affiliates. I am president of a state affiliate. I have been president of two special interest affiliates. I have also been president of ACB. I happen to believe that our board and our membership have an obligation to uphold the values that are at the core of what our organization represents. At the very heart of the American Constitution is the First Amendment, which, among other things, guarantees people the right to speak freely and be heard. Our country has gone to war to uphold the values that are subsumed under the name of democracy. We have opposed totalitarian regimes which have mistreated and brutalized those who did not agree with those in power. I am convinced that our organization regards free speech and reasoned debate as inherent components of what we do. As president, I would not have dared to cut somebody off just because I disagreed with what he or she was saying. We abide by Robert's rules because we believe that we cannot arbitrarily limit discussion. For me, then, there comes a point when the rights of affiliates must take second place. For me, that place is when an affiliate is behaving in ways that fundamentally contradict the principles that underpin who we are. I believe it is up to the board in each case to decide when we have reached that place. I also believe that, if our members disagree, they must take action at the convention. I also am convinced that our Constitution must be more explicit about the responsibility of our organization to uphold the rights of individuals and minorities to be treated equitably by our affiliates. Obviously, the principle of affiliate autonomy is important. We have, I think, moved a little away from the place where we were once. We now have an executive director instead of a national representative. 
I think there is a general recognition that our national organization must sometimes take positions with which our affiliates may disagree. I truly do support a balance between these two principles. However, I am bothered when any affiliate uses its autonomy to challenge the right of ACB to uphold the values that make us who we are. Affiliate News Tennessee Council State Convention The Tennessee Council of the Blind will hold its state convention in Knoxville, Tennessee at the Cedar Bluff Holiday Inn, August 22-24. through 24. It will feature an auction. For more information, contact Dan Dillon at 615-874-1223 or email dan.dillon at comcast dot net. Texas State Convention ACB of Texas will hold its annual state conference and convention at the Hilton San Antonio Airport Hotel, September 25-28, through 28, 2014. The hotel is located at 611 Northwest Loop 410, San Antonio, Texas, 78216. Room rates are $94 per night plus tax for up to four people per room. To make your reservation, call 210-340-6060 and be sure to mention that you are attending the American Council of the Blind of Texas Conference to ensure that you receive the conference rate. The cutoff date is August 26, or when the block of rooms is filled. The hotel provides a free airport shuttle 24 hours a day. The shuttle also can go up to a three-mile radius of the hotel, depending on availability, as airport trips take priority. This year's convention will again feature a walkathon, which will be held at the North Star Mall. More details will be available on the ACBT listserv and in the Texas Star. If you have questions or need more information, please contact Peggy Garrett at PRCGARRETT at SBCGLOBAL.net or by telephone at 281 438 9665. Here and There, edited by Sharon Strakowski. The announcements of products and services in this column does not represent an endorsement by the American Council of the Blind, its officers, or staff. Listings are free of charge for the benefit of our readers. The ACB Braille Forum cannot be held responsible for the reliability of the products and services mentioned. To submit items for this column... Send a message to S-L-O-V-E-R-I-N-G at A-C-B dot org or phone the National Office at 1-800-424-8666 and leave a message in Sharon Lovering's mailbox. Information must be received at least two months ahead of publication date. Director Sot, West Virginia University... WVU is seeking applicants for the position of Director of the WVU Center for Excellence in Disabilities, CED. The CED Director serves as a member of the Health Sciences Executive Committee and is responsible for program development, liaison with state and national offices and agencies, management of financial and human resources, and facilities.
The incumbent will provide direction and leadership toward the achievement of the organization's mission, strategic goals, and objectives outlined in the five-year strategic proposal. The director will have a faculty appointment within the appropriate school and department. The director is responsible for all aspects of program development, human resources, financial, and leadership functions within the CED. This includes, but is not limited to, completing financial transactions and personnel actions in accordance with university policy and procedure, building and maintaining a high-caliber workforce, and overseeing the design, marketing, promotion, and delivery of all products and services. He or she will provide expert leadership and management oversight while developing and maintaining relationships with a wide variety of stakeholders at the local, state, and national levels. Applicants must have at least a master's degree in a related field. Those with a doctoral degree in a related field are encouraged to apply. Qualified candidates must have a minimum of five years' experience in organizational development, building and sustaining programs, leveraging public and private funds, and managing complex organizations. Demonstrated success in financial management, governance issues, administration, and leadership within an organization is also required. The successful candidate will have outstanding interpersonal and communication skills, ability to work collaboratively as well as in a leadership role, and possess extensive knowledge of the field of disabilities, especially federal, state, and local policies, practices, and systems. A minimum of 10 years total experience in a relevant field is required. Review of applications will begin immediately and continue until the position is filled. Applications should be emailed to Grace Boyles, G-E-B-O-Y-L-E-S at H-S-C dot W-V-U dot E-D-U with a cover letter, current resume, and contact information, including email addresses for three professional references. Interested candidates may contact the chair of the search committee, Leslie Mila, at l-m-i-e-l-e at h-s-c dot w-v-u dot e-d-u for additional information. L-S-A-C, LSAC, Agrees to Reforms The Justice Department filed a joint motion for entry of a landmark consent decree to resolve allegations that the Law School Admission Council, LSAC, engaged in widespread and systemic discrimination in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA. Under the proposed consent decree, LSAC will pay $7.73 million in penalties and damages to compensate over 6,000 individuals nationwide who applied for testing accommodations on the law school admission test, LSAT, over the past five years. The decree also requires comprehensive reforms to LSAC's policies and ends its practice of flagging or annotating LSAT score reports for test takers with disabilities who receive extended time as an accommodation. These reforms will impact tens of thousands of test takers with disabilities for years to come. The United States intervened in DFEH v. LSAC, Inc., which was originally brought on behalf of California test takers in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. 
The United States intervention expanded the case to ensure comprehensive and nationwide relief under Title III of the ADA for individuals with disabilities who request testing accommodations for the LSAT, a required examination for anyone seeking admission to an American Bar Association-approved law school in the United States. The allegations in the complaint detail LSAC's routine denial of testing accommodation requests, even in cases where applicants have a permanent physical disability or submitted thorough supporting documentation from qualified professionals and demonstrated a history of testing accommodations since childhood. Without the necessary accommodations, test takers with disabilities are denied an equal opportunity to demonstrate their aptitude and achievement level. The lawsuit further alleged that LSAC engages in discrimination prohibited by the ADA through its practice of flagging the LSAT score reports of individuals who received extended time as a testing accommodation, thereby identifying to law schools that the test taker is a person with a disability. Under the consent decree, LSAC has agreed to put a permanent end to the practice of flagging the LSAT score reports of individuals with disabilities who take the LSAT with the common testing accommodation of extended time. Pay $7.73 million to be allocated for a civil penalty, compensation to individuals named in the United States and other plaintiffs' complaints, and a nationwide victims' compensation fund. Streamline its evaluation of requests for testing accommodations by automatically granting most testing accommodations that a candidate can show she or he has previously received for a standardized exam related to post-secondary admissions, such as the SAT, ACT, or GED, among others, and implement additional best practices for reviewing and evaluating testing accommodation requests as recommended by a panel of experts to be created by the parties. Individuals who applied for testing accommodations from LSAC between January 1, 2009 and the court's entry of the consent decree may be eligible to receive a monetary award from a nationwide victim's compensation fund. The claims administrator for the fund has not yet been determined. This information will be posted on LSAC's website following entry of the consent decree by the court. Questions about the Victims' Compensation Fund should be directed to the claims administrator. For more information or for a copy of the consent decree, visit www.ada.gov slash d-e-f-h underscore v underscore l-s-a-c slash l-s-a-c underscore c-o-n s-e-n-t D-E-C-R-E-E dot H-T-M H&R Block, DOJ, Enter Consent Decree Acting Assistant Attorney General Jocelyn Samuels of the Civil Rights Division and U.S. Attorney Carmen M. Ortiz of the District of Massachusetts announced that they have entered into a consent decree with HRB Digital LLC and HRB Tax Group Incorporated subsidiaries of H&R Block, Incorporated, to remedy alleged violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA. The decree resolves the department's allegations that individuals with disabilities are denied full and equal enjoyment of largely tax preparation-focused goods and services that are provided through H&R Block's website and mobile applications. The decree has been filed with the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts for the court's approval.
On December 11, 2013, the Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts filed a complaint in intervention in the lawsuit National Federation of the Blind, NFB et al. v. HRB Digital LLC et al. to enforce Title III of the ADA. The complaint alleged that H&R Block failed to code its website in a manner that would make it accessible to individuals who have vision, hearing, and physical disabilities. As described in the complaint, Individuals with disabilities use various assistive technologies to access the Internet, including screen reader software, refreshable Braille displays, keyboard navigation and captioning, among others that are not currently compatible with H&R Block's website. Under the terms of the five-year decree, H&R Block's website, tax filing utility, and mobile apps will conform to the level AA success criteria of the WCAG 2.0. In addition, the H&R Block website will be accessible for the start of the next tax filing term on January 1, 2015, with additional accessibility deadlines over the following years of the decree. Additionally, HRB Digital and HRB Tax Group have agreed to appoint a skilled web accessibility coordinator who will report to H&R Block's chief information officer, adopt a web accessibility policy, Initiate training on accessible design for its web content personnel. Evaluate employee and contractor performance based on successful web access programming. Conduct regular automated and user group testing. And hire an approved outside consultant to prepare annual independent evaluations of Block's online accessibility. H&R Block will also pay $45,000 to the two individual plaintiffs and a $55,000 civil penalty. New NLS Network Division Chief Appointed Richard Smith has been selected as the new chief of the network division at NLS and will begin his duties on June 16, 2014. Richard has 20 years of experience in the NLS network, including six years as director of the Louisiana Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and 14 years as director of the Wolfner Library Talking Book and Braille Library in Missouri. He also has served as Midland's chair and as a member of the NLS Digital Transition Committee. Richard holds both an MLS and a Ph.D. from the University of Pittsburgh School of Library and Information Science and has several years of experience teaching library science with an emphasis on automation and technology. New Members of Hall of Fame Michael Collins and Newell Perry will be inducted into the Hall of Fame for Leaders and Legends of the Blindness Field in October. Collins dedicated 30 years of his career to Perkins, first as supervisor of the Perkins School for the Blind's campus-based deaf-blind program, and then as founder and director of the Hilton Perkins International Program, with the mission of training teachers to teach children who are deaf-blind with multiple disabilities in developing countries. Under his leadership, the program grew from serving a few hundred students to helping more than 10,000 children annually in 63 countries. Dr. Newell Perry was called the father of the modern civil rights movement of the blind. According to Matson, 1990, Perry presided as mentor and godfather to the organized blind movement spawning the California Council of the Blind, 1934, the National Federation of the Blind, 1940, 
and the American Council of the Blind, 1961. In 1912, Dr. Perry took the post which would define his career, Director of Advanced Studies at the California School for the Blind, and was in this position until retirement in 1947. He is best known for having mentored Perry's Boys and Girls, a group of talented blind young men and women who would, with Perry's assistance, begin the organized blind movement of advocacy and civil rights. High-Tech Swap Shop For Sale ID Mate Brand New Still in Box Asking $800 or Best Offer Contact Robert Lewis at 410-653-2498 For Sale Brand New Sony Laptop with 14-inch Wide Screen 4 Gigs RAM 1 Terabyte Hard Drive DVD player, Windows 7, Office 2007, and JAWS 14, asking $925. Brand new electric razors, Philips Norelco SensoTouch 3D model, 1255XPR, with travel razor, asking $170 with free shipping. Call Jose Luis at 818-220-6256. For sale. Sendero Group GPS Receiver, to be used with the Braille Note Apex, comes with instructional disc, asking $1,000 or best offer. Contact Dan Dillon at 615-874-1223 or email dan.dillon at comcast dot net. For sale. Oribus Talking Video Magnifier. The Oribus is both a reading machine and CCTV in one system. Includes a 22-inch HD LCD, camera, and integrated speech system. Asking $2,000. CarryMate Video Magnifier. Includes camera, 11-inch LCD, remote, distance lens, integrated battery, and carrying case. Asking $895. Voice Sense QWERTY, in original box, never used, asking $1,250. Braille Sense on-hand compact note-taker with speech, 18-cell refreshable Braille display, and Perkins-style Braille keyboard, asking $1,850. Both Read It Wand in original box, never used. The wand is a portable USB camera that turns your desktop or laptop PC into both a reading machine and video magnification system, asking $1,200. Prices are negotiable. If interested, contact Kathy at 615-469-4891 or via email at kathy.lamb. 06 at comcast.net ACB Officers President Kim Charlson First Term 2015 57 Grand View Ave Watertown, Massachusetts 02472 First Vice President Jeff Tom First Term 2015 7414 Mooncrest Way, Sacramento, California, 95831-4046. Second Vice President, Marlena Lieberg, First Term, 2015, 
15100 6th Avenue Southwest, Unit 728, Burien, Washington, 98166. Secretary, Ray Campbell, First Term, 2015, 460 Raintree Court, Number 3K, Glen Ellen, Illinois, 60137. Treasurer, Carla Rushevel, Second Term, 2015, 148 Vernon Avenue, Louisville, Kentucky, 40206. Immediate Past President, Mitch Pomerantz, 1115 Cordova Street, Number 402, Pasadena, California, 91106. ACB Board of Directors, Burl Colley, Lacey, Washington, Final Term, 2016. Sarah Conrad, Stevensville, Michigan, First Term, 2016. Janet Dickelman, St. Paul, Minnesota, First Term, 2014. Michael Garrett, Missouri City, Texas, Final Term, 2016. George Holliday, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, First Term, 2014. John McCann, Falls Church, Virginia, First Term, 2016. Alan Peterson, Horace, North Dakota, First Term, 2014. Patrick Sheehan, Silver Spring, Maryland, First Term, 2014. Dan Spoon, Orlando, Florida, First Term, 2016. David Trott, Talladega, Alabama, First Term, 2014. Ex Officio, Denise Colley, Lacey, Washington. ACB Board of Publications, Denise Colley, Chairman, Lacey, Washington, First Term, 2015. Ron Brooks, Phoenix, Arizona, First Term, 2015. Marsha Dresser, Reading, Massachusetts, Final Term, 2014. Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia, First Term, 2014. Ex Officios, Ron Milliman, Bowling Green, Kentucky, Bob Hachet, Waltham, Massachusetts, Burl Colley, Lacey, Washington.